Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world for the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I am Director of ECFR, and today's World in 30 Minutes podcast is about the future of Syria. We're sitting, well some of us are, here in London, where the Syria's Donors Conference is beginning, just a few metres down the road. Some 70 leaders are expected to congregate on the nation's capital for the fourth of these sorts of conferences. And the organisers are hoping for pledges of over £6 billion. The UN has appealed for £5.3 billion, and apparently there are another £900 requested by regional host governments. But while the donors are talking in London, important things seem to be happening in Syria. There are reports that the Syrian regime, backed with Russian airstrikes, is cutting off the rebel supply routes to uh, Aleppo. And at the same time, the peace talks were collapsed in uh, in Geneva yesterday. I've got a all-star cast of analysts to explain what's going on. Um, from Jordan is Alexandra Sayeh, who is the policy officer for Oxfam Syria Crisis Response. She's developing policy and campaign strategies uh, aimed at improving the, the lives of Syrian refugees in the camps and the host communities in Jordan. She's joining us by Skype. Sitting next to me here in London is Fyodor Lukyanov, who's the editor-in-chief of Russia in Global Affairs and also chairman of the Presidium of the Council on Foreign and Defence Policy, as well as research director of the Valdai International Discussion Club. And also have two colleagues from ECFR, Jeremy Shapiro, our research director, who uh, worked on these issues in the State Department in a former life, and uh, Julian Barnes-Stacey, a senior policy fellow from our Middle East and North Africa programme. Maybe go to you first, Alexandra, given that you're closest to the the refugee crisis uh, physically. What do you think we should expect from the from the donors conference what we're expecting for um rich governments to do at the donor conference conferences contribute is to pledge actually multi-year commitments to funding that should improve the lives of refugees in jordan lebanon and turkey and the the, the greater region what the difference between this conference and other conferences however is that we're expecting one is that we're expecting the the funds to um contribute to longer term change and address longer term issues that Syrian refugees are facing so um improve um access to jobs um um while also addressing the clear humanitarian needs um that that refugees are facing but um what what we're hoping to see though is actually that uh countries like Jordan Lebanon um, lift restrictions on refugees, uh, on the ability of refugees to work. Um, what, what we what refugees have done in the past is um, rely on humanitarian assistance um, in both the, the the camps and outside the camps. The thing is that most refugees live outside of the camps. In Jordan, 85% of refugees live in host communities in urban areas, um, living uh, with Jordanians um, without um, adequate humanitarian assistance. And what we're hoping to see now is for refugees to actually be able to work and provide for themselves. So, Julian, you've been studying the crisis from the beginning how much difference do you think that this kind of conference might make to the flows of people coming out of syria 
Well, I mean, I think the the, the, the fundamental problem with, with, with the Syria crisis and the conference is that it continues to be a Band-Aid mm -hmm. in terms of the outward flows, and it's about helping the regional countries uh, manage the, the, the refugee burden. And, and it should be said that much of that has now been driven by the, the, the European desire to stop refugee flows into Europe. As opposed to, of course, addressing the core fundamental issue, which is that until you find a solution to the Syria crisis, until you get an end to the civil war, you're not going to stop Syrians fleeing from, from Syria itself. So, yes, this will help the surrounding countries better manage the burden, but I don't think it's going to do much in terms of preventing or, or, or lessening uh, the continued outflow. The only thing that's going to change that is the broader political process that, that as you said, is stuck. Before we get on to that broader political process can you tell us a bit more about what you think the significance of this breaking news is uh, about this the the supply routes to aleppo well i think this is very significant this is uh, the regime the, the 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 assad army with russian air cover um closing the last remaining supply route between the turkish border and Aleppo and, the, and, and Aleppo city, which the rebels have been using uh, to maintain the fight, to maintain their foothold in Aleppo city, which is their biggest uh, launching pad. I mean, this is where they are. They have their biggest symbolic hold in terms of territory on in, in Syria. It's where you have a larger segment of rebels who aren't seen to be affiliated with ISIS or so extremist. And so, really, this is a clear sign of of, of the regime gaining the upper hand. It's a clear sign of the ability and the success that the Russians are actually having in terms of changing the balance of power on the ground to, to such extent that the regime is effectively now sitting on the front, front foot, foot, which will obviously have massive implications in terms of what they're prepared to give in terms of a process, political process, and in terms of any likelihood of transitioning away. From so, Fyodor, you've been trying to explain what russia's doing from the very beginning of the crisis we talked before on this on this podcast um what do you think uh the significance of this um, uh, move on the ground is and how are russian perspectives on their on the on the intervention on the whole campaign changing now uh, now, first of all, uh, it's of course no uh, sensation and no secret to anybody that Russia from the beginning uh, made stake at the future of uh, the current uh, Syrian regime. And the initial plan was that uh, Russian airstrikes should support uh, Syrian army and make Syrian army the ultimate agent of uh, uh, combating uh, terrorism and ISIS, but um, as we know, Russian understanding of terrorism in Syria is much broader than just ISIS. So this is one of the profound disagreements with the United States and many other parts. So in this regard, what happens now is exactly what was uh, envisaged by, by Russian strategic planners initially. And uh, to be very blunt, uh, when we have conflicts like this, negotiations and fighting are two sides of the same process. And on the ground, parts are trying to improve their negotiating positions at the table. So just now, Russia is helping Assad to make uh, its position on negotiations stronger. So while the two sides are working out how to use their negotiations and, um, and their fighting to, to advance their positions, more and more refugees are, are 
are being created. Jeremy, what do you think the impact of this is going to have on the refugee crisis and the flows of people? Uh, if, in fact, the Aleppo city falls, which is definitely a possibility given that, given it, given that it's been cut off from the uh, Turkish border, which is where a lot of the supplies have been coming in for for the last two or three years, um, then that will have a massive impact on refugee flows. There will be, I, I think, uh, Aleppo was Syria's largest city before the war. It's not entirely clear whether it is anymore, um, but there are nonetheless hundreds of thousands of people there and hundreds of thousands of people in um, in opposition-controlled areas who may well end up fleeing toward uh, the Turkish border um, if the city falls. Um, and, that, of course, the city doesn't have to fall to the regime. It could fall or parts of it could fall to ISIS, which is also present uh, in the neighborhood. Uh, so I think, in fact, it's an incredibly volatile and dangerous uh, situation. And uh, the, the likelihood that there will be many, many more refugee flows, many more deaths, and many, much more humanitarian crisis emanating from it, I think, is almost certain at this point. Um, and I think that that's why it's really important not to lose sight of what's happening at the donor conference. It's a little bit more interesting to to talk about events on the ground, and I, I certainly agree with Daniel that that Julian, that, I'm sorry, with Julian, <laughs> um, that that's the that that is the ultimate solution. But the the fact of the matter is, we don't have that ultimate solution right now. We don't even have it in prospect. We have we frankly have no idea what to do about the overall. Uh, conflict, and so, uh, we have this negotiating process, but no one has much hope for it. And I think in that case, a Band-Aid is a, is, a, is a pretty impressive, is a pretty important thing to do, and I think that it's, it's incumbent on the uh, international community to make that Band-Aid a lot larger, and particularly, as was emphasized, we need, to, we need to realize that these refugees are very likely to be in the neighboring countries for quite some time, and that we need to move to a, a, away from pure humanitarian aid and to a and to a paradigm which understands that they need to be integrated into these countries for better or for worse, because that's the only option we have. Alexandra, do you want to come back in on that? I mean, to what extent do you think that is something that's even possible to, to imagine? Um, yeah, I just want to address something that was said earlier. While there's a there's been a clear escalation in the violence inside Syria, the, the problem is that Syrian as asylum seekers actually have no place to go anymore. I mean, the border, the, the borders are even, the, the borders of neighboring countries are even more tightly managed than ever before. We have, you know, there have been reports of more than 16,000 Syrian asylum seekers trying to get into Jordan. Um, going into Lebanon has been increasingly more difficult since January 2015. In Turkey, it's also, it's been a lot more difficult as well. Um, this the donor conference is is the the appeals for this year are unprecedentedly high over nine billion dollars, and in the past um, the Kuwait the Kuwait pledging conferences have only been able to get about three billion dollars. So we're I, I mean I've I've heard that this year um, they're expecting to double those numbers, um, and but but the, this has to come with policy change in neighboring countries as was mentioned by the other uh, other people on this call so julian um you've been uh, looking at some of the the policies in the neighboring countries i mean how, how do you see their perspectives changing as the, the the flows increase and more and more of the displaced citizens within syria actually uh, start to to find themselves looking for for other places to go well as as alexandra mentioned i mean the the conditions have tightened up 
very significantly over the last year or so. Um, the countries have closed up the borders. They're not letting people in. It's becoming much harder to, to register. And without registering, you can't work legally. You can't get uh, financial aid. So the, the, the countries are, are, are clearly feeling the burden of the refugee crisis much more seriously. Uh, there's fears of, of economic and political tensions domestically, given their own lingering structural problems. I mean, you look at the likes of Jordan and Lebanon in, in particular, and they have huge problems of their own already before the refugee crisis. So clearly they are asking for, for much more help. They're clearly trying to leverage uh, the, the crisis to, to get more international support right now, knowing particularly that from a European perspective, there is actually finally this greater desire to engage, having abandoned the, 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 the humanitarian situation in the, in the re region effectively for so long due to the sudden refugee influx into Europe. Um, but, but it's a burden that, 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 that they're going to continue to bear. I doubt that the pledges that, that are given will be enough. And there's a real question, Mark, about how uh, the longer-term questions of integration and political stability uh, can be managed with, as Jeremy says, no immediate prospect to an end in fighting in Syria and a likely kind of continued outflow of people through illegal means as much as legal means into these countries. It's a massive problem. It's a regional problem. I mean, the Syria crisis is, is flowing out in, in so many directions in terms of terrorism and, and humanitarian refugee outflows. Um, and, and the London conference is one small step in terms of stepping up, but so much more needs to be done. One of the things which is really troubling about this whole discussion is the sort of disconnect between the sticking plaster approach, which is happening in London, and then the kind of structural approach and the, the, the receding prospect of a sort of political solution. Julian, you were uh, very, very optimistic a few, well, in relative terms, given the kind of generally <laughs> downbeat way that people have been thinking about Syria, but relatively optimistic about the the prospects of uh, of the talks uh, in Vienna um, and how Russia's intervention actually might make it more likely rather than less likely that we'd be able to come forward. How, how do you feel at the moment, given that the, the talks have been cancelled and maybe Assad feels that there might be a military solution to, to this um, uh, crisis rather than having to to uh, to get into the sorts of compromises that people were discussing in Vienna? Well, I mean, to be fair, I was never optimistic. What I was saying, though, is that, to my mind, the Vienna process, the, Interna the International Serious Support Group, offers probably the only means of hoping to de-escalate the crisis. Um, I think that without some kind of external arrangement of the great powers and the regional powers pushing inwards, you have absolutely no prospect of changing the trajectory. So my hope was that actually the Russian invention, intervention, as it did, opening up a new political dialogue between the Americans and the Russians, creating a room that finally the Saudis and the Iranians were also sitting, could be the beginning and needed to be pushed. And I think that political theater, that political game, as I say, remains the only game in town. Now, clearly, it's incredibly difficult. The likelihood of near-term success is is, is is as remote as it comes. I think, the, the um, as, as has been mentioned by others, the fighting on the ground is dictating what is happening in, in, in the negotiating rooms. Um, and there's clearly a, a lack of commitment on all parts 
um, to, to actually move meaningfully towards a space of compromise. Now, what I think is interesting is certainly the Russian, the, the Assad regime with Russian support is in a much stronger position today. But I don't think that that means that they will ultimately be able to regain control of Syria or declare victory. My impression is that uh, we're very likely to see a new influx of uh, armed support for the, for some of the opposition groups from some of the regional states. I think they were waiting uh, specifically for the peace talks to collapse so as to say to the Americans, look, uh, there is no genuine commitment from the Russians and the regime. We need to escalate our military support. And I think we're just going to see a continued cycle of escalation and counter escalations. Uh, the regime is on the front foot today. I have no doubt that the, 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 the kind of their ability to sustain that um, is an extreme long shot and very unlikely to hold. And we're going to be in the same place in a few months down the line. And once again, everyone is going to be in the negotiating room. And I think until that negotiating space opens up and actually people are prepared to, to, to engage in real compromise, uh, we're unlikely to move forward. But that is still where I think the focus needs to be, even if I'm not optimistic. Okay. Fiona, you, uh, you wanted to come in. What do you think? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, basically, I, I agree with what Julian said. And uh, uh, mostly that the US-Russia uh, um, relationship is really the only maybe the, not the only game in the town but the most important game and that's why i uh, would uh, really ask uh, what was the aim of the u.s administration a couple of days or a week ago when in the middle of very important diplomatic negotiations about syria when uh, Kerry and lavrov uh, spoke almost uh, uh, daily, and there were a lot of uh, intense con uh, contacts, very fruitful contacts to launch this process. At the same time, the U.S. administration, first on the middle-sized level uh, as a, a deputy treasury secretary, and then on the highest level and the level of uh, White House, publicly accused Putin for being personally corrupt. Uh, my question is, I don't know whether they are right or, or not, but my question is, what kind of reaction did they expect from Russian side making this in the middle of very important diplomatic process? Jeremy, you know, you used to work <laughs> for these guys. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, look, um, I think that there's several answers to that question. First, um, I, I don't imagine that they did expect a good reaction uh, from Syria. But as you were I hope so. uh, on Syria, as you were pointing out, um, the, the Russian strategy is to um, seek to negotiate from a position of strength. And um, the problem with that strategy is that everybody has it. Uh, the Americans have it. And so they are, uh, they are using every tool in their arsenal to try to negotiate from a position of strength. And if, uh, unfortunately, when you get a bunch of sides sitting around a table negotiating from a position of strength, usually what you end up with is escalation. <laughs> Um, and so that's what we're seeing both on the ground and in uh, U.S.-Russian relations. Actually, that's been given that it's been reasonably contained so far. But I think that Julian is really right that we're, we are uh, as the Russians escalate on the ground, as the Americans escalate into other arenas, we are seeing um, we are seeing a uh, we are seeing a greater opportunity, a greater possibility of uh, both. Uh, increased warfare in Syria, in, increased arms flowing into Syria. I think that Julian is perfectly right that the American and regional response to the events on the ground in Syria will be 
to use exactly the logic that you that you used, which is we need to we need to be stronger at the negotiating table before we can get any concessions from the Russians, uh, and therefore we'll see greater escalation. And I think as this uh, as this in incident indicates, we could see spillover into wider areas of the U.S.-Russian relationship. I've become quite nervous about uh, U.S.-Russian interactions on the ground in Syria. They 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 are quite closed in to a small area. There's efforts to militarily deconflict, but I think that those efforts uh, aren't guaranteed for success. And as we've noticed, uh, any small incident in that area can create international tensions. So uh, in my view, the, the situation has gotten well out of hand at this point, to put it mildly. And I think that, uh, that both sides should be considering serious concessions because it hasn't been uh, because negotiating from a position of strength is just a recipe for continuing this war and a recipe, frankly, for weakening both Russia and the United States. Uh, and that really what they should be doing is uh, realizing that actually Syria isn't the most important thing in their relationship uh, and that what they really need to be focused on is is getting the other regional states, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, to be on the same page with them about ending the war, regardless of its outcome. But that raises two kind of, uh, immediate questions for me. One is, like, Fyodor, you said that the only important game in town is is Russia and the US. Um, whereas it strikes me that maybe that's not true. <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe the important game is about Iran and Saudi Arabia and Turkey and other players that, that have got more boots on the ground than either the US no, or I, uh, If I may, I can explain. Yes, of course, you're right, uh, Mark. Uh, and this is actually my position was from the beginning that whatever Russia and the United States will do, uh, they cannot solve Syrian issue without uh, constructive goodwill on the sides of local players. And uh, frankly, I don't see any signs of this uh, yeah. goodwill, be it Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Iran and others. Uh, what I mean when I endorsed uh, Julian's um, uh, idea is that at the moment, uh, if we speak about this particular negotiation, here is, of course, the diplomatic game between Russia and the United States. Yeah. And this game is important, but uh, again, you are absolutely right. The mo more important thing is whether outside forces will be able to come uh, to any kind of agreement with uh, regional actors. But the second question it raises is, is because yeah, Jeremy um, was saying, yeah, both sides need to realise it's not working for them. They can't speak from a position of strength. But this particular moment, as we're talking here, Moscow probably does think it's working moving from a position of strength. No, so therefore, it's, it's particularly unlikely they're going to be. Uh, yeah, um, I think both sides. Ready to... Both sides <laughs> actually feel that way, and both yeah. sides have felt that way for quite some time. The ups and downs, as Julian was saying, don't really affect it. The strategy has been on both sides that every time when you're when when you're strong, when when things look good, you don't need to concede. Yeah. And when things don't look good, you need to escalate in order not to concede. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that that is a recipe on both sides for continued war forever. Yeah. But I think we can we can draw a parallel. It's not fully correct, but but we can do it uh, with the so-called Minsk process in Ukraine. Because Minsk process started when both sides came to conclusion that they cannot achieve more by only military means. As long they were 
convinced both Ukrainian side and Russian side that something could be done by military means, Minsk process never started. Yeah. So how close are we to either side thinking that they can't achieve anything by military means? I think on the Russian side, or Russian slash Syrian side, we should, of course, take into account that Syrian interests are not exactly the same as Russians. Yeah. But uh, now we see that they are gaining uh, terrain. And, of course, for Russian side, it's extremely important. Aleppo is a symbol. It's not so much about a particular situation with the opposition groups. But uh, Russian uh, intervention should be justified for people in Russia, because since it started in October, we did not see uh, any spectacular victories and, right. and, and successes. So it's very, very important to show that now, now it works. Yeah. So you think that having gained Aleppo, Putin might hang up his, um, might say, OK, we, we declare. We, what was the moment in the Iraq war, the mission accomplished one? Yeah, I when Baghdad fell. With this boat. Oh, no, no, no. Mission accomplished. Uh, after Bush, no one will say it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but anyway, Aleppo is very important to show that you, you see we came there and we started to, to, to achieve something. Yeah. So maybe because we're running out of, of time now, but given that we're on this kind of US-Russian um, uh, track, and if that is one of the, the more hopeful uh, parts of the the process hopeless though it is uh having listened to the logic you're describing maybe the two of you could tell us what what sort of scenario you think um both sides might agree to and also um if there are european leaders listening to the podcast what could they do because it is particularly frustrating uh situation for europeans that the refugees are not going to to, to russia or to um or to to the u.s uh Obviously, most of them are going to local countries like Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey, but increasingly they are finding their way to Europeans. And the European political voice has not been particularly audible um, in Geneva, in Vienna, in any of these talks so far. Uh, sure, that's an easy question. Um, the uh, <laughs> Look, I mean, I think that um, the as we've, as we've sort of agreed, U.S.-Russian agreement on how to proceed is is necessary but not sufficient for getting to a solution i'm very i'm not very hopeful about about things on the ground i'm not very hopeful about the regional uh the regional actors getting on the right page but i am a tiny bit hopeful about the us and russia getting on the same page i think the point that was made that they are both hopeful that um that the that military actions can provide them with better leverage is is right and is the problem, um, but at the same time both sides have accepted and this is important that there is no military victory achievable that there it's not that you you can't through military means end the war and so they've both accepted that there needs to be a negotiation there needs to be a diplomatic solution. Uh, by the way, not all the actors on the ground or in the region have accepted that, but the U.S. and Russia both have. Uh, so the question is what that diplomatic negotiation will contain. And in my view, um, I don't think that we've, we've been a little bit too hung up on the question of Assad and the question of what the regime will look like afterwards. I well understand why people on the ground are hung up about that. But to me, the most important thing is to end the war. And that frankly, um, looking into the distant future, an Assad regime cannot survive peace in Syria. And so the question of whether we 
as the international community decide what Assad's future is, is irrelevant because he cannot end the war. He has to have the war continue or end it in military victory. So what we should agree with the Russians is that, um, is that we don't really care what the regime looks like as long as we can stop fighting. This is, to, this is, from an American perspective, a concession to the Russian side. But in a long-term perspective, it won't matter. Um, and I think what the Europeans can do in that regard is they can, they can try to focus the Americans on ending the war. Because from their perspective, the war itself not the question of the future of the Assad regime, but the war itself has become their geopolitical problem. And they need to impress upon the Americans in the way that the Americans will never feel for themselves that the refugee flows coming in from, uh, from this conflict and from elsewhere in the region, that the possibility of the export of terrorism is becoming a geopolitical risk for Europe itself, and that that is a much greater interest to the United States than the question of who rules what in, in Damascus. But part of the attraction for the Americans of the war is that it's in a way of pinning Russia down, isn't it? I mean, there's been a lot of American <laughs> weapons, as you've written, uh, there eloquently. There are definitely factions within, within Washington, within the United States, who see it that way. But I don't think that that's the overall view. It's certainly not the government's view. Uh, it, it's certainly not the White House's view that it is useful to pin down Russia in Syria. Um, the, the, there isn't a great fear of Russian strength in Washington. There is a greater fear of Russian weakness. And the idea that, uh, that Russia will become pinned down in Syria and bleed the way that it did in Afghanistan does have a certain frizzen of schadenfreude, if I can mix languages, but um, doesn't really appeal from a strategic sense uh, for for U.S.-Russia relations and doesn't really make people think that Russia will become somehow more accommodating just because it's suffering in Syria. So, Fyodor, what's your advice to... What, first of all, what do, you, what, do you think that that scenario that Jeremy laid out is a kind of plausible one and something which could be attractive in Moscow? And what is your advice to Europeans about what they should uh, be doing? So, first of all, my advice to European Council on Foreign Relations, just <laughs> listening to Jeremy, I thought that this um, notion of uh, schadenfreude in global politics is very important, seriously. And I think uh, we need to organize a seminar to discuss <laughs> schadenfreude as a factor of <laughs> international relations. Uh, that could really be fun. Yeah, that would be very interesting. <laughs> Uh, I think that basically I agree with everything Jeremy said, and I am very grateful that, that he said it, because it's a very rare opportunity to agree with an American uh, <laughs> specialist. Uh, I think it's extremely important, uh, exactly, as, <laughs> exactly as Jeremy said, to refocus negotiations, because we try now, or until now, we try to organize uh, a Dayton for, for Syria, to discuss how Syria will function and will will look like after the war. But it does make sense because before we need a conference and ceasefire, yeah. how to end the war. And then with warlords, with all those involved, Assad, non-Assad, all groups which, which would be able to to contribute to, to, to this, to discuss the, the future stance, uh, future composition of Syria. And I think it's very important to understand now because it was a wrong aim before. And here, I think Europe uh, will have a role to play because diplomatic intrigues, it's something with at least historically Europe was very good in. Not so active in Dayton. Though one of our co-chairs obviously was one of the chairs of, of Dayton. So, yeah. um, uh, but, <laughs> no. but 
the Richard Holbrook was also quite an important part of the of of, of the mix. Um, so, um, well, we might not be solving the situation in Syria, but we have come up with a great idea for a for a, for a think tank seminar. So we'll have to maybe end <laughs> on that <laughs> on that uh, on that positive note against these gloomy uh, wider prognosis. This is obviously a topic we're going to return to time and again with uh, the world in 30 minutes because um, my conclusion of having listened to this is that uh, there'll probably be time for many more podcasts before the, the Syrian crisis is over. Uh, it has been a fascinating discussion from Alexandra Saye, Julian Barnes-Dacey, Fyodor Lukyanov, Jeremy Shapiro, myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye for now. There are links to the work that we've been doing on Syria and on uh, Russia's role within it and the wider international diplomacy on our website at www.ecfr.eu. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Katarina Botella-Tinaro and our researcher is Ulrika Franke. 